Good. All right. <laughs> All right. Where are you Where are you guys calling from again? Uh, we're in the San Francisco area. Oh, love it. Love San Francisco, man. Yeah, so you're down in New Orleans. That's like one of our favorite cities. Mm-hmm. I love that place. Been out there about, what, 10, 11 times now? Well, you have. Yeah, well, I have. Yeah, well you know, I, I was born and raised here, and then I moved to L.A., and I was doing music videos, and actually got moved out there by a company, and then didn't leave. I was in L.A. for 20 years. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, really, I, I, I actually love it. Los Angeles. It's Pretty cool place. Nice. Well, what was it like uh, growing up in New Orleans? Um, it's like really kind of like a real southern town. I mean, it's kind of slow and romantic and very unusual and and very progressive for for the time. You know, we'd go down to the French Quarter and you know, gay people everywhere and and uh, <laughs> strip clubs and. And I say, was it the uh, decadence? Is that the uh, the festival out there? Yeah, they have the decadence festival every, and then they just had the gay Easter parade, and oh, wow. you know, and and then of course when I was growing up here, we could we could go walk in a bar at sixteen and and get a drink, and, and nobody, you know, I mean, it's just a it's a really really cool laid back place. And then I was in I was into music and in um, I, I mean, are we officially starting now? Because these are this is some stories that. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. We're we're recording and everything, so yeah, okay, just sure. whatever you'd like to share. So, so I understand yeah. there is music down there in New Orleans as well. Is that the is that the case? <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit, brother. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, I know you're being facetious, but yeah. <laughs> no, man, I I um started out p- playing music, you know, in in New Orleans. I, look, I was always into photography, and I had cameras and 35 millimeter cameras, and I was always taking pictures and photographs and I had a dark room and I'd go into the dark room and, you know, process my own film and, and print my own photographs and so on and so forth. But, but I, you know, I also, also I wanted to be, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be like the Beatles. And then as I got a little older, I wanted to be Keith Richards. So <laughs> and I played in a band called sex dog. Nice. Uh, yeah, it was a really cool band, and back in the late seventies, mid to late seventies, we actually had our name before the Sex Pistols, but oh. but uh, we were a really good band. In fact, we got invited to play at the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival way back when in the late eighties. Uh, excuse me, late seventies, and and um, but but oddly enough, that's how I got in the film business because. There was a young young group of guys in a band called the Rat Finks that opened for us, and then they moved to San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. So we've heard of them out here. Uh, we we well, actually have some friends here in the area that are kind of big in the uh, the, Bay, well, the Bay Area punk scene that came up in the eighties. But yeah. yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. Who they became? They became a band called the Red Rockers, and they were signed by a label called Four One Five Records, and then. 415 Records was picked up by CBS and they, 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 CBS, you know, put their weight behind the Red Rockers. And these guys are really good friends of mine. And by that time I had a grip truck and lighting equipment and dolly and a 16 millimeter camera, a little French camera called an Eclair. Lo and behold, we started chatting and they, 
we said, you know, it was like a Andy Hardy movie or something, you know, like, yeah, let's put on a show. Let's, let's make a video. Yeah. <laughs> and I called CBS records and they said, yeah, man, go ahead. But we're not giving you any money. We don't know you. So I said, okay, how much time do I have? And they said, you get about three and a half weeks. So we, uh, we put it together, man. And, uh, I, I, uh, raised money from a guy who owned a record company and put the rest on my measly credit card and we made the video for I think 15,000 bucks and called the woman up at CBS Records in New York and said okay we got a video she said I'm coming down on a plane you show it to me you better have something for me to see and back then you know we were shooting 16 millimeter film so we had it all sunk up and cut and everything and on a on a on a what was called a flatbed and um, it's a machine that, for anybody that doesn't know, a, a flatbed editing machine was a machine where you could, it's like a tabletop with film reels on it. When you put film on one set of reels and you put your sound on another set of reels and you'd sync it and, and it would lock picture and sound for, for editing purposes and viewing purposes and so on and so forth. And... Uh, the woman came down from CBS. She sat in the chair. We turned on the machine. She looked at it and she says, I love it. I'm buying it. And that's how I got into the business. And here's the trip, man. All, all of those videos that I did back in the eight, every about every music video I ever did. And I'm not making this up. I did close to 100. Um, okay. They're all on YouTube. Really? That's yeah. awesome. Including the first video I just talked about, the Red Rockers, the song... It's called China, and check it out, and look what we did in Pirate's Alley in the French Quarter. Nice. Oh, really cool. Yeah. <laughs> and then after that, CBS started sending me all over the place to do videos for their artists, and I was <clears throat> the Romantics and in L.A. and Gloria Estefan in Chicago, and uh, you know, so I was in Los Angeles and. At the time, I knew some guys in the advertising world, and a friend of mine called his buddies out in L.A. and said, oh, you got to meet this guy. He's going out there to do a music video. And, you know, music videos in the early 80s were, were hot, you know. There weren't a lot of people doing them. And uh, these guys came out, visited the set, sat quietly, didn't say a word, handed me their card and said, hey, um, uh, just call us before you leave L.A. And I said, okay, man. So I... I called them and um, had a meeting with them, and they said, we want you to work for us, and we want to move to L.A., and we'll pay all your moving expenses and put you on a retainer. And that's how I got started. Nice. I knew I was in Los Angeles and doing one music video after the next. I worked with a few good companies out there. I got to be friends with David Fincher and Michael Bay. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I'm still still connected. I still hook up with Fincher every now and then on, on email, but not that often anymore, but Michael Bay, I've seen him and had dinner with him a couple times and sat with him at the Directors Guild. And, you know, we were shooting a video downtown Los Angeles and Fire Marshal was on our show. And he came over and said, hey, man, you guys shooting next door? And we said, no. We said, well, who's shooting next door? I said, well, I don't know. He said, I'm going to go shut those efforts down, man. And he uh, went over to shut them down and it was Michael Bay. <laughs> Michael Bay and his producer came over and, we said, well, hey, dude, why don't you just, you know, introduce ourselves. And then we said, I'll tell you what, why don't you, you know, just pay the fire marshal $800 daily rate. And then 
And uh, if it's okay with the fire marshal, he'll just, you know, go ahead and watch both both sets. And they and they did it. And that's how I met Michael Bay. Nice. Yeah. Yes. So he was like he was he was like shooting the divinals and you guys are shooting no man Mr. he was doing, or something or oh he was doing he was doing Kenny Rogers oh wow <laughs> I'm not kidding it was a Kenny Rogers video nice <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he was um, you know I, I look at those guys and I look back at their work and I go you know God damn those guys were really really they were visualists I mean really talented guys. You know, and, and Fincher particularly, and I used to have some really good conversations with him prior to him breaking out, and when he would talk about, you know, his image, image, image all the time. And I, I you know, I, I was a theater major in college, and I said, "Well, dude, just do yourself a favor, go see a play." You know, because he was he was so into visual effects, he worked for um, um, Industrial Light and Magic. You know, so that's where he came from, and. I don't know, man. I'm, I, I, he's just, he's a good guy and a, and a good good filmmaker, and Michael Bay as well. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, I, I would think like music videos, especially back in the '80s, uh, probably not a whole lot of like you know oversight and stuff. So probably a decent medium for like a, a director to like have their vision and execute it without a whole lot of oh, yeah. interference and stuff. That's uh, that's you're 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 spot on, man. Because they didn't have anybody at the record company because it was just taken off so fast they they didn't have an executive they, they sent a guy out to our set um i forgot which record label it may have been cbs but the guy that came out to the set to kind of to represent the record company was um he was a an album cover designer he what he hadn't shot any film he'd never been on a movie set he never you know so, so, never been on a music video set Nice cat. I mean, and really very talented guys, you know. I mean, these guys were brilliant artists and designers for album covers back then. But nonetheless, they, you know, they'd walk around on the set and they'd say, yeah, whatever, man. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a good time to be doing music videos in that, that period because it was total freedom. And, and I think a lot of really good stuff happened. I'd been doing them for so long before there was a change of the guard essentially at the studios and such where the younger executives and the people coming up and the other executives were eyeballing the music videos as sort of like the, the next, you know, they're going to find the new Steven Spielberg in music videos, which I never thought was a good idea to begin with. But, <laughs> um, but I, I went off thinking, well, I'm not going to make anything in my life if I stayed doing music videos. Cause I'd been, I'd already done them for like four or five years and I'd already hit a hundred and I did videos for Eric Clapton and Bonnie Raitt and John Lee Hooker and Mick Jagger and, um, you know, a lot of cool people. And I got to jam with Eric Clapton. That was that was my that was it. man. I, yeah. I bet growing up in New Orleans, that's like a like a dream come true kind of thing. Dude, I jammed with Eric Clapton in London where we were shooting on his Les Paul, his 1960s sunburst. And I, I have a 1968 sunburst. And I just, you know, it was like the Sistine Chapel where, you know. <laughs> God's pointing, touching his finger with Adam, and I thought, "Oh my God!" I'm <laughs> Eric Clapton's handing me his freaking guitar. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. It was, it was really great. But then that that in turn, I met Bill Paxton as a result of us doing music videos. He walked into our office and 
with James Cameron, and they used our production office to, to produce a music video for Paxson's band called Martini Ranch. Oh. I got to be friends with, not great friends, but with uh, James Cameron. He was a really lovely guy, you know, just a sweetheart of a man to talk to. And But I got to be really good friends with Bill because Bill then did a film that I was making, a short film, try to get something dramatic, you know, and a reel. Did a little short black comedy called The, the Roommate that um, actually went to Sundance and got me my first job directing films for Roger Corman. Nice, yeah. Yeah, I mean, had I done a different kind of film, I, you know, looking back, you go, oh, shit, you know, we did this crazy, wacky movie, and, you know, I should have done some serious drama, and I'd ended up doing a bunch of episodic television early in my career, but, you know, I, I'm glad that we did the film we did, because it was kind of out there, man. It was it was a little weird. Um, but yeah, weird, yeah. It was weird enough to get me a you know, a, a, a spot at Sundance, you know, and and then I got hired, you know, my manager sent the film over to Roger Corman and I made a, a pretty damn good movie for Roger. It was um, called Forced to Fight with Richard Roundtree from Shaft, you know. Yeah, and Dom the Dragon Wilson, yeah. <laughs> yeah, brother. But you know what? Oddly enough, the, the, the script, you know, was so well written. They had two writers on it, but one of the writers had spent eight years in prison for um, for bank robber for bank robbery and so consequently the dialogue and everything was so real and so well done um, and we shot it at the Lincoln Heights jail down downtown LA where it was abandoned and all the movies people were using it as a as a prison cell set and um, yeah the film turned out really well and I mean I was did a Roger Corman movie and Richard Roundtree was so goddamn good in it, and and uh, good actor, man. He was really good and a real joy to work with, and ended up getting a good write-up in Variety, which was kind of unusual for a Roger Corman film. Yeah, but yeah. just but I, I I left something out just prior to that. I had uh, written and and executive produced a film for Disney called Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken. Yes, uh, I was. I was going to say. Well, I, we hope we don't skip over that because uh, yes, yeah, it's like one yeah, I knew uh, watch as a kid. Project. <laughs> I was the perfect age and a female growing up in horse country when that movie came out. So I've seen it way more times than I should have. <laughs> oh well, thank you, thank you. <laughs> That's why I'm still getting residual checks. Yeah. <laughs> No, that 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 came about in an interesting way. I was um, Wild Hearts. Uh, I met the woman uh, when I was doing volunteer work. My my mother was a, a registered nurse, and she was always into volunteer work. And and you know, but anyway, in summertime, she said, "You kids are not going to just hang out and get into trouble." And she had us do volunteer work. And uh, um, I mean, among other things, I built soapbox derbies like four or five years in a row. But um, one of the volunteer jobs I had was at the Lighthouse for the Blind. And that's where I met that woman that that story is based upon. About the diving girl, Sonora Carver. And she was, I mean, completely blind. She had lost her eyes and they took them out and she had glass eyes. And she didn't want to really talk about it too much. And she trusted me. And then we started talking. And then one day I'm working and she said, oh, they want to show you something. And she showed me these 
old black and white 8x10 of her when she was in her 20s in a bathing suit, standing next to this incredible-looking animal, a horse, and out near the diving pier, I mean, it's, a, it's the steel pier, rather, uh, in Atlantic City. And I thought, oh, my God. And then the next picture she showed me is her in midair, mid-flight, on the back of a horse, going 40 feet from a ramp down into a tank of water. Eesh. And I went, holy crap, is that you? She goes, yeah, that was me back in the day. And I said, what the hell are you doing? What is this? And she started telling me the whole story. And then it turned out she had a book published. And she trusted me. And we became really good friends and went over and shot a little documentary film of her. And then my friend, Matt Williams, who is, uh, you know, we went to theater. We were in theater together at college. And he moved to New York to be a playwright and had a little shithole apartment, you know. Um, where I'd go up and hang out on the couch, and we'd write the script. And we wrote the script. And then um, later, Matt got a job writing for Bill Cosby's show, and then he created a little show called Roseanne. And then he crea created another show called Home Improvement. I think I've heard of those ones. Yeah. It's a, sh it's a shame they weren't more popular. <laughs> My God. And then, so he was at Disney with Home Improvement, and he took our script into Jeffrey Katzenberg and Jeffrey loved it and said, yeah, let's make a movie. And that's how that happened. So it was, uh, you know, it was fortuitous, I guess, you know, knowing the right person, right time. We worked hard together. We were good friends and we're still very good friends to this day. And that's how that, that's how that came about. And, uh, I, I didn't have an, enough on my reel at the time to allow me to direct the film. I had just done the short film and a hundred music videos, but of course, Shortly after that, Michael Bay and David Fincher were being hired to direct, you know, big major motion pictures um, amongst another handful of guys coming out of the music video world. But that was a few years after I decided I needed to go do something else to try to break into doing movies. So, And I knew, you know, all these people that it started with Roger Corman, you know, James Cameron started with yeah, Francis Ford Coppola, Scorsese, uh, Ron Howard. Gail Ann Hurd. Later on, I, I just, when I was directing episodic television, I directed some shows for Gail, and and we became good friends, and we're actually still good friends. And I said, "Hey, Gail, I, 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 I'll tell you what. We were talking about Roger Corman movies, her first film and my first film. And I said, uh, I'll show I'll show you mine if you show me yours." <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> she said, oh, man, yours is so much better. <laughs> um, yeah, but, it, you know, and I felt I felt really, you know, proud to kind of to work for Roger. And he was a wonderful guy to work for. I got to tell you, man, he was he's the kind of guy. He would just look at your dailies for the first couple of days. And, you know, he was a filmmaker. He was a director. He made films. Yeah. He was just a producer. He knew if you were if you had your act together or not. And. He'd look at the footage and just look at it for a couple of days, and then he'd leave you alone. Yeah, he definitely seems like one of those guys that has like a real passion and stuff for what he does. But he's also, you know, kind of the the business back end of it as well. So he, uh, yeah. you know, r r runs his ship a certain way, and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what it seems like from the outside. I don't as know hard as it was, as hard as it was, because we had old Ari Bl's thirty-five millimeter film short ends and recans and God knows what, um, upright movieolas. We didn't have flatbeds. 
I mean, it was tough, you know, and no, no video monitors or anything. You, you, you couldn't watch the scene as it was, as you were shooting it. I'd go literally on the camera, line up shots with the DP and say, start here and finish there. And then that was it. And then you trust the DP to get the shot. I mean, like the old days, it wasn't, yeah. you didn't have a monitor. So you, you know, you sit on the edge of the set next to the camera and you work with actors and you watch the, the action and you go, yeah, that looked good or that looked fake or that was okay, but I think we can do better. And, you know, and it was just, and here I was doing all these music videos for $100,000 and $75,000. And then but I said, man, I got to do a dramatic film. So I made this film and I think the total budget was 750000 bucks. You know, it launched my career, kept me going. It was great. Nice. Well, then, of the course, after Forced to Fight, uh, working with, you know, Don Wilson and Richard Roundtree and everything, then comes the, op- is that when the opportunity came for Fantastic Four right after that? Or? No, I did a film in between called Final Embrace <clears throat> with, um, uh, he was in eight, eight is Enough, the dad. He was, he was great. Yeah. So I made that film with him and, and, that film turned out really well, and then... Oh, Dick Van Patten. Dick Van Patten. He was, oh. Thank you. Jesus, I'm embarrassed. Dick Van Patten was <laughs> the sweetest, nicest, most professional, you know, New Yorker, street guy, you know, you would never think of it, and he was just, what a pro that guy was, man. He, he never, you know, he always made these kind of like, these squeaky clean TV series and shows, and he never got the play these rough and tough guys so here he was this grizzled old detective and we're shooting the scene outside and there's one line in the film where he gets the perp and he's putting him in the back of the car and the perp screaming i'm innocent i'm innocent you cop suck you bunch of fucking pig <laughs> and, and dick van Patten just says get in the fucking car <laughs> i said oh, that's great dick but and he goes hey Oli, oh let me talk to you a second man i said i said what dick what's up brother he goes he said, let me do that one again. I said, I want to let me put a little more street on it. I said, yeah, no problem, man. Until <laughs> <laughs> Dick Van Patten grabbed the guy and says, get in the fucking car. <laughs> and I said, and he looked over at me and I just gave him a thumbs up and he nodded with a big smile on his face, man. And he was, oh, man. I, you know, the, the memories of working with Roger Corman, though, I, I got to tell you, after all this stuff that I did after that, and I guess it's because, you know, we, we, we were young and it was exciting. We were, you know, I was making my first feature film, my second feature film. And just the whole joy of it and the thrill of it, you know, and seeing scenes cut together the way after you directed them and getting the performance and then getting in the editing room and finally getting your first answer print where you're not listening to the freaking tape edits going through the movie oh you know you get a rhythm of the whole thing after it's been after it's cut of just t- tape splices going through the freaking movieola and then all of a sudden you get an answer print and there's no more of those bumps in the sound from the from the tape splices and you go holy shit this is a movie man <laughs> <laughs> it's real <laughs> and then you put music and sound effects on it and then you go and then you go holy crap this really is a movie <laughs> and then i got the call from roger about the fantastic four and out of the blue he just called me and roger had this this interesting way of talking and he said oh, it's, 
it's uh, Roger. Um, I, I have another project I want you to do. And I said, well, what's that, Roger? He said, it's uh, the Fantastic Four. And I was like a, a pause. And I said, are you talking about the comic book characters, Roger? He goes, yes. And I went, yes, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> Because I was a big Marvel fan as a kid. I wasn't a DC fan. I liked Superman and all that stuff, but I, I, I just identified with the Marvel characters because, you know, they were just, they were us. They were ordinary people, you know, that get, that, that was bitten by a spider or had gamma rays or something strange happened to them. But they were, they were earthlings. They were people, you know, yeah. that, that got superpowers, whereas, you know, DC characters were otherworldly and i thought yeah well that's kind of fun and interesting but the the marvel characters you know they were more human they had vulnerabilities and issues and problems like all of us did but they also had the extra burden if you will of being a superhero you know all of a sudden being a superhero was a big responsibility it wasn't like you know look at me i'm a shining example of you know goodness and civility and patriotism and all that stuff like Superman, um, which was great. But the, the Marvel characters kind of had to live in the shadows, you know, they were always, they had to, even though there was a Clark Kent, you never felt the, the, I, I just had a real connection with the Marvel characters. And I have to say Spider-Man was by far my favorite character. But Fantastic Four were, I mean, right there on his heels, you know. And when I got the call from Roger, I just, like, flipped. I said, oh, yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> when, then, where, what do, what, what do I have to do? <laughs> yeah, but then, then reality kicked in, you know. He said, well, it's, uh, we, we've got to shoot the film, start shooting in three weeks. And I went, what? And, you know, because we were, have a script or <laughs> they, had, they actually had a damn good script. The guy who wrote the script, Craig Nevius, he did a he really did a great job. And he he did it, you know, based on the 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 evolution of it all and the germ of it all and how it all started and where they came from. It was it was comic book number one. It was the first comic, you know, how they became the Fantastic Four. And he, he did such a brilliant job with the script. But then the reality of trying to get it all together in a matter of weeks was 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 challenging, to say the least. But you know, we were young and you know, full of piss and vinegar and excited. And I got you know Mick Strawn, this really brilliant production designer, and and um, all the guys you know that did the costumes. Those guys were absolutely brilliant and uh, and built the the thing. Our thing is still the best thing. I mean, everybody. I was Go just going to say, we actually have a, 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 a copy of that 1994 Fantastic Four movie right over here on our shelf I was just looking uh, at. It's the best one. It really is, which is which is weird because, you know, we didn't even know it existed up until like a couple of years ago when uh, before that we were at a Comic-Con and someone told us about it. But but yeah, it's 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 not not horrible. I mean, it, like the effects are. Uh, you know, of of the time and low budget, but like the story and everything and the performances, actually really good. <laughs> yeah, Everett. Let's see, Everett Burrell and John Bullich were the guys that created the thing and the and Doctor Doom and God, they did such a brilliant job. And the thing, the the, the uh, when I talked to them, I said, look, the thing is, yeah, he's he's got the toughness about him. 
when he goes and says it's clobbering time. But he's also extremely vulnerable and wounded, you know, and he's got a wounded psyche and he's, you know, you, you got to have a lot of sympathy for this guy because he's, and I kind of compared him at the time to the elephant man. Yeah. You know, when that scene in the elephant man, and I really wanted to try to cop that scene, but we never had the budget or the people or the sequence to do it the way I wanted to do it with the thing being caught out in public when he just wanted to appeal to people and say, look, I'm just a human being. And it was that brilliant scene in the elephant man when he, he gets caught in the, in the pissoir, wherever it was in the, in Paris, he's chased in by the mob and he's, they all stop and he looks at him and he just says, I am not an animal. And it was like, Oh my God. And that, and that just still gives me chills. And I thought, you know, that's who the thing is. That's, you know, and these guys were so freaking brilliant and it's not CGI. It's all mechanical. They put servo motors in the head of that rubber head. And when he says it's clobbering time, he looks mean, a tough son of a bitch. And then when he, he meets Alicia Masters, his eyebrows go up and his face just turns to putty. And I go, oh, my God, you guys, you did it. You absolutely did it. And then the guy in the suit, Carl Chiafalo, of course, he's Italian. You know, he's full of emotion. He just, he just, his mannerism and his and his body postures and his body manner and everything just, just beautifully helped sell everything we needed to sell in, in those scenes with the thing. And anyway, I, I could go on and on, but I just, uh, you know, for all the millions and millions of dollars they had to make those new movies they 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 blew it and i'll tell you a quick story about that and i think i can <clears throat> say this even though it was told to me in confidence by the executive who runs constantine film now um at the time there was a guy named Bernd bernt eichinger and he, he called me up after this whole thing went down and i, I went and visited with him in his house in beverly hills and and he actually helped me get a film that I directed in Prague, a German language film, actually, <laughs> of all things. Um, <laughs> but, but that was also another great experience. But he told me, you know, he was sorry and told me what the reality of it all was and what had happened. And then not until just maybe a year or so ago, I was back in L.A. and I met with, with Robert over the Constantine film. And he told me what Bounce said and... They came out of the screening room at Fox when they saw the first new, big, Fantastic Four film. And they just were walking out of the theater, and Robert said, Bant was very quiet. And he turned to Robert, and he just said, Oli's version was better. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I just, I damn near burst into tears. I went, Oh my God, after all these freaking years, man. It was like I thought, wow, I got a little vindication, you know. And I thought, Jesus Christ, we had no money, we had no visual effects. And that's what I thought. I said, God damn it, guys, if you just let us finish the film with a, give me a million bucks or two to just do the visual effects the way they should be. And clean up the movie a little bit. And I, because our, 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 our film, I think the soundtrack 
the, the, this David and Eric Wurst, W-U-R-S-T, and, and these guys, we went into the basement of Capitol Records where Frank Sinatra recorded music, and they wanted to do this so badly and had so much faith in it that they spent $6,000 out of their own pocket along with what we had in the budget. And we had a literally a 48-piece orchestra in Capitol Record Studio on Vine Street. And they recorded the entire score for that film in one day. Wow, that's amazing. And I'm sitting down there watching this go on, and I'm going, oh, my God. This is, And I just thought the music for the film, and if you just take the music out and you get a CD of it, it's it's really you know kind of James Horner esque. I mean, it's really yeah. it was really good, man. And then the little actor, Ian Trigger, a little British actor who was, came from the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts in London. I mean, everybody in the film, you know, all, the entire cast was all very good. Everybody was good. Rebecca Staub, who played Sue Storm, was terrific. Yeah, Jay Underwood, Michael <laughs> Bailey <laughs> Smith. Oh, yeah. God. All oh, wonderful um, people. Joseph Holt and Alex, Alex White. White. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, great cast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it, for for those of you listening that don't know the the full story of the Fantastic Four in this movie, uh, there's a wonderful documentary on Amazon Prime we watched the other day called Doomed, D O O M E D. You can get a lot lot more information, pictures, and uh, stuff like that as well. But it's just an incredible story, and and if you can find the movie, watch it. It's 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 Please. great. Go to a Comic Con, pick it up. Yeah, <laughs> let yeah, them let them versions out there. <laughs> and, and for people that don't know what happened, I mean, the film Fantastic Four was was made just as a contractual obligation, so Constantine Film could maintain the rights to the franchise, and that was it. And we and but it was unbeknownst to all of us. No, nobody knew that that was the deal. We thought we were making a film that was just going to be released and handled as a regular movie, but come come to find out at the end of the day, they took the film away from us and refused to give us a copy and so on and so forth. And thank God somebody at lightning dubs, when I begged the, one of the producers at Roger Corman studio to just let me please have a copy of the film. He, he gave me a three quarter inch copy. We never got the opportunity to get the film in a, what was called at the time a telecine, which is you get the negative and you transfer the negative directly to video and it just looks pristine and beautiful but we never got it to that point 
So the, the copy that, that I got was off of a, what was called a three quarter inch video cassette. And when I brought it over to, I think it was lightning dubs, one of those dubbing houses in Hollywood, I, somebody, thank God, you know, had the gall or the sneak or whatever to, to, to uh, bootleg a copy. And then that's how it all got out there because it was, and that's why it doesn't look that good. People go, Oh, that movie looks like shit. And I, and, I, and, and you know what? I have to agree with them because we got, it was a VHS to a VHS to a VHS and God yeah. knows what, I mean, and if you look at the one, the one little, little clip of film that was transferred via telecine was the trailer that Roger ran into theaters prior to the film being pulled. And the only reason he ran it into theater is because he believed in the film and nowhere in the contract with Constantine did it say that he couldn't release the movie. So they went, they went, you know, bonkers when they said, wait a minute, Roger, what are you doing? He says, well, oh, I'm going to release the film. And he said, well, you can't do that. He said, well, it doesn't say I can't. <laughs> so they, um, they pulled the trailer and Roger made a, another sweet deal. You know, God bless him. He, um, he was paid an, an additional $1 million cash to pull the film and not release it. And that was that. And Roger called me one day. I'll never forget. I was driving in Tampa Centia Boulevard and had my little flip phone, my little Motorola flip phone. And he says, Oli, it's Roger. I said, oh, hey, Roger, what's going on, man? He says, well, I have to tell you, I'm so sorry. We can't release the film. Uh, I went, oh, fuck, what? Come on. Oh, can I say that? I'm sorry. I said, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You mean you can't release the film? I had to pull off the road and stop, you know? And he said, well, they paid me a million dollars not to release the movie. I just wanted to thank you for, for all of your effort in making a great film. And that was it. And, and that was it. I said, well, thank you. Thanks, Roger. Is there anything else? And, oh, that's it. Goodbye. So, I mean, look, I don't blame Roger for whatever he did. He's a, he's a smart businessman. He did what he had to do. I love Roger Corman to this day. Um, but, you know, none of us got any additional money for it or got a bump or anything. And, you know, we signed a contract to make a film, deliver it for X amount of dollars, and we did. And that was that, you know. Well, luckily, but, it's got a, like a cult status now. And exactly. I, I mean, That's the payback, man. I mean, how, how many years has it been? 22 and a half? 25 or something. Yeah. 20, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Dude, you would not believe how many people I've been, I've, have interviewed me a little, it, just recently. And I went up to New York for a film interview. I was interviewed by a French film company that's uh, being financed by Canal Plus. And they're making a documentary film about Stan Lee. Oh, nice. Yeah. And I, they called me up and said, uh, Oli, we'd like to, for you to be in the film about <laughs> Stan Lee. And they flew, flew me up to New York and interviewed me for this film. For the film and it's really cool and that and that there's um what is it called the society of illustrators museum in new york city oh yes that's supposed to be phenomenal oh my god they had stuff in there from the you know jc lion decker and all these guys from the 1930s and 40s and illustration from vogue magazine and everything in between and oh my god and there was a the reason I, we went there is because they were showcasing the work of Stan Lee and the, the, what his inspiration 
for the comics was all hanging there in the in that museum that for a special exhibit and it was just phenomenal nice uh, anyway it was uh yeah so there's that's kind of like the saga of the fantastic four in a nutshell but uh, (laughs) it's nice that it continues to this day you know yeah absolutely well and of course for for yourself professionally and stuff like you've also done some great television shows like with uh was it the legendary adventures of Hercules and Xena and yeah. even stuff like Viper and uh, Mortal Kombat Conquest, which is amazing. <laughs> how was how it working with, with like all those, like you did a couple episodes here and there with them, but how, how was television like different from, from a movie? Um, well, the, the only, the big difference in television is, you know, as a, as a director, you're, you're not, you're not overseeing the entire production from beginning to end you're a, you're a guest you walk in the the show is already being produced the actors already know their characters so on and so forth and for the most part directing episodic television it's blocking really and but you got to know where you want to put the camera if you want to make it interesting and i would go in with a extensive shot list and i, I would talk to actors i say look if i'm not coming in here to reinvent the wheel or you know or, or try to get in any kind of big theatrics here i'm just if i'm here if you need me and it would just be about a matter of telling actors but even you know when i've read documentaries about howard hawks and such i mean some of these guys they wouldn't say much to actors they said you know i hired you because you're you're a brilliant artist you're an actor it's your interpretation um and i'm going to ask you to just sometimes just Make it faster, make it slower, you know, hold, take a beat there, take a breath. I want to see some expression to, in reaction to what that person is saying. I mean, that's really what di- directing film is all about. You don't want to get into trying to o- over direct too much because uh, it's a combination of things, obviously. And if you work with the actors prior to going out on the set, you have read throughs, which we did in television. You have an opportunity to talk to the actors at a table, at a table read, and you say, look, okay, anybody have any questions? You know, if I had any questions, we would talk about the characters, and I'd I'd say, well, you have to get me up to speed. What happened to you to get you into this situation where we are now? Because I wasn't on the last episode. I wasn't on the two episodes ago or whatever. You have to know the provenance of the character. You have to understand where they are in the in the context of the series, you can't just walk in cold and say, oh, I'm going to direct it this way. And you go, well, dude, you're, you're missing the, the boat because you don't know what that line means. There's subtext to this line. There's something else to this line that connects to a storyline that's, that's already been established. So you have to do your homework in regards to knowing what's the beginning of the story and where, where, where it started and, and brought these characters to that particular place where you are in that particular episode of television. You gotta just know where they're coming from. And then once you understand that, then it you it it kind of enlightens you and gives you an opportunity to say, you know, for a particular line where you know that it's relating to a character in their past or a feeling in their past or something dreadful that happened to them and they were abused or or they, they killed somebody in their past, but it was it was justifiable and there's, you know, I mean, there's things in those stories where you have to go, ah, okay, now I know why you're saying this line. And I think 
it, to really get it, get that point across and make that connection, you know, say it a little bit slower, say it with a little more conviction, say it, you know, or, 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 or say it with, uh, you know, with a little sarcasm or whatever. And, and that's, that's what you really have to do in television. You have to know the lay of the land pretty much. You got to know where they, those characters are coming from that, that when you arrive, you got to know that that's where they are in the story. Um, but you know, it's important too in television and in features too in film. You know, I, and I got a chance to do some music videos with a lot of cool people. And one of them was with Ron Howard. And I did a video for Ron Howard for um, a movie he did called Gung Ho. And um, he was he was a beautiful guy. And we chatted and, you know, and I talked to him and he was all about shot list. And he shot listed and eventually he did storyboard for everything, just like Alfred Hitchcock. And I was I'd studied Alfred Hitchcock. I studied Scorsese. I studied all these guys and they were all into shot list and figuring stuff out before you go out and try to make the film. And, and that, that was important too, in everything, even in features and in television, particularly because you don't have any time. You've got eight days to shoot this thing. You've got, you know, 12 hours a day, an hour off for lunch. And, you know, some days you got six pages, eight pages, some days in studio, you got nine pages and you got to have your shit together or you're, are you going to get left behind? And, and if you, and if you don't make your day, they don't give a crap, you know, okay, that's beautifully done or not beautifully done. But guess what, dude, you didn't make your day. You're fired. Yeah. You go, you don't come back. So I, I would really, really do extensive shot listing. I mean, I knew where the dolly was going to be up to what point in the dialogue. I would break it down. I knew if I wanted a crane, I'd go talk to them about a crane. If we wanted a helicopter, I thought, man, this would be great if we had a helicopter. I'd go talk to the producers. But you, you'd show it to them, map it out. And then we have storyboards done for all the visual effects shots, particularly in Hercules and Xena, where they use a lot of visual effects. I said, look, we have to have, and they had storyboard artists. So I'd go meet with storyboard artists and we would sit there and plot out everything we, we needed to do. And then we'd have a, a, a list of shots of things that were done. We knew we needed a blue screen or green screen for this particular shot on this particular day. And you're working into the schedule. And... It, it's a it's a compromise because a lot of people say, oh yeah, if you do an episodic television, you're just shooting the schedule, you're not shooting the script or a story. But if you but if you do your homework, and you manage the schedule before you go in, and not not let that schedule to take control of what you're trying to do creatively, you just got to do your freaking homework. So you go in there, you get that schedule knocked out with with shot list and prep, and then. When it comes time to shoot the film or the scene, then you got a game plan, and yeah, so it allows you that extra time to hone it in. And yeah, yeah. So you you can think about it from more of a creative perspective. So we would do some interesting things that way, and then I wouldn't shoot masters a lot of times. I'd say I don't need to. I said, man, the, most of that footage is never going to make it in the show. It's going to end up on the floor, you know, the proverbial floor. I said, look. Let's get get to this point in this scene and cut. And now we're, we're going to go in and do the coverage this way. We're going to do a dolly shot by this line. When I turn around, we're going to push in this reaction, blah, blah, blah. And the other thing about doing prep is I'd sit at my desk. You know, when we did Hercules and Zena, it was all in New Zealand. And this was the same team, the same crew. I'd say 90% of that crew went over and did Lord of the Rings. 
And one of the guys that I was working with, um, I think Steve Taylor. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he was with, he, he ended up being with Weta. And the dude came in, we were talking about dragons and stuff that he was building all this stuff for us. And he was like a mad scientist. I mean, he had, his hair was all over the place. He had glue and crap under his fingernails. You couldn't even see his fingernails. For, and, um, but he was freaking brilliant. And then um, I'm watching the Academy Awards for that year. Lord of the Rings came out and this dude picked up two Academy Awards. <laughs> I'm serious, man. And that, that was the, the level of talent that was in New Zealand working on Hercules and Xena. So it was, you know, and it was Sam Raimi and Rob Tappert. And those guys were just great, great producers, man. And they would just, they knew how to do it. They just, and they did it and they did it well. And there's even like Taika Waititi and guys like that now coming up out of New Zealand where it's like for such a, such a small population. It's yeah, some great movie making and stuff coming out of there. So so true, man. I, they they really do have a, a very. I don't know where it comes from, or it's in the air, or the water, or what. But they, <laughs> you know, you got Peter Jackson and all those guys down there, man. They're just freaking brilliant guys. But yeah, so that was my experience there, and and uh, you know, being prepared too helps you. You know, you sit at your desk and you're figuring out shots, and you think, oh my god, you know. And Roger Corman used to tell me, he says, if you got a scene with a lot of dialogue, give them something to do. Put something in their hands, you know. Don't just let them sit there and do nothing. But that's why I think a lot of these movies back in the 40s and 50s and so on and forth, they were all smoking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it gave them something to do. Smoking you know, and drinking. Well, they're, do, well they're, <laughs> they're spouting exposition, you know. Yeah, you, you, you got a drink in your hand or a cigarette, you know. A little cigarette case and all that, all that, all that stuff that went with it, and so that was kind of cool when you sit and you think about stuff enough, and you go, "Oh, you know what? I think we should have uh, have this chair right here where she sits down, or there's a dish, or the chakram, or the knife, or you know, something. Always something would pop up, you know, and then you're figuring out the action, and you go, "Well, you know, we're in a fort, and you know, it slows the action for these guys to go up and down a ladder." Can we can we lay ramps, build ramps up to the back of the wall of the fort so I can have them running? And the production designers, yeah, no problem, Mike, no problem. And, and, and you know that's just, but that comes from thinking about it in advance. Don't go out there and scratch your head and then because that's just you shoot yourself in the foot. And frankly, I, I think anybody that doesn't plan well enough, they're just a hack. You know, they, they shouldn't be in the business. They're lazy. I know a couple of directors like that who will remain nameless. So to this day, I could punch them out <laughs> because it's like you know what you got the adv- you got the you've got a privilege to sit here and direct a film, you fuck, and you want to go play golf on Sunday, and you're so fucking worn out you can't even come show up on the set and direct. You fall asleep in a director's chair. I mean, I've okay. seen this. I've seen this happen, and it's like you're you're a disgrace. I mean, you know, people. People die to be in this business, to be in that position. And you, you finally get the opportunity and because of some fluke, you know, and you don't even have the respect for the industry and the, and the business that you're in, you know, and the art that you're in to, to do your job. I mean, it just ugh, infuriates me. But anyway, that's Hollywood. Yeah. Well, I would hope they don't. Uh, their their careers don't last that long when that's the case. But I'd be say, I don't know. <laughs> You'd be surprised, man. Uh. 
His name is Cameron. No way. Yeah, so <laughs> people, people are good at talk and bullshit. They're really good at meetings and they get the job. And if you're really yeah. good at a meeting, most nine out of ten times you'll get the job. You don't have to know what the fuck you're talking about. You're just good in a meeting, you know. And if you're and if you sound like you know what you're talking about, that's that's eighty percent of it right there. You know? <laughs> have a lot of confidence, a lot of bravado, you know. Talk down to them just a little, just enough to to put them in their place, and then next thing you know, they're they're eating out of your hand, and then you get the job. Yeah. But uh, so, it, what else? What else would you guys like to know? Well, I when I was in high school and stuff, one of my favorite shows on TV was uh, when Sammo Hung finally came to America with martial law, and I just uh, <laughs> I was looking through the IMDb and realized you did the finale episode of that. Yeah. How was it working with Sammo Hung and like Arsenio Hall and all them? Yeah, that that was that was a it was a good show for me. Um, not a good show apparently for the talent. Um, they had problems, you know, and I and I tried, you know, you got to stay out of all the politics of it all, otherwise you're you go right down the drain. But um, I, I love working with Sammo. The guy was he was he, he was brilliant at what he did. You know, as a martial artist, he was just absolutely brilliant. The guy, they, and then the, and I'm gonna have to be completely honest with you. The, the guys that came in that do a lot of the martial arts work in that film, on that shows, were the guys that that worked on the Matrix and some other stuff. And I learned so much from watching those guys work because they they would they would you talk about not shoot masters. They would come in. And there would be like maybe they could do 72, 75 setups a day. And I'm going, Jesus, that's ungodly. We, you know, we had a big day if we, if we did 30 setups or 35 setups, you know, two cameras, you could say, okay, we did 40 setups, but these guys, every little, every little, all of Samo's martial arts work was so beautifully choreographed. That he they they knew exactly where he was going and exactly what at what angle they wanted to capture that particular moment in the fight sequence, and it was it was like they would go action, and then <laughs> two seconds later, or three seconds later, and cut, and then move the camera and go to another spot, but also advance the action in the fight sequence. So it was never. I mean, God sakes, man! And they they go in there like a, like a like a puzzle, and have like fifty shots, you know, in the editing room, and they start piecing them together like a mosaic, and I'm like, oh my God! And I really learned a lot from watching those guys. And Arsenio was really sweet to me. He he was not too nice to the writers, but um, that's another uh, story. <laughs> but the show was great to work on. Um, you know, to, to be able to work with those guys and 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 be part of that that whole action sequence, and, well, the action scene. It was just it was it it was it was better than what I'd ever been exposed to prior to that. You know, they, these guys were real masters of martial arts. Let me just put it that way. I see, and it sounds like they have the uh, the preparation down to a science there. So, <laughs> oh my God, I mean. It really is. It, it, I'm, I'm not kidding. I, I would go out there and I'd watch this stuff and 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 not. And I grew, I did theater work. I was exposed to dance and 
you know, a lot of movement in pantomime. And, I'm, and I did a lot of this stuff when I was growing up and I've, I've worked in the opera. And so it, it's, it's, I'm not just saying this to say it. When, when I watched Sammo work his, work out his choreography, it was no different from seeing a dancer or a, a ballet or, or modern dance. It was just so beautifully choreographed and every, and not only choreographed for the sake of a, of his fight sequence, choreographed for the, for the camera. So they knew, he said, we're going to go this way, that way, and this way. And they would alter it, alter the action sometimes to, to make it a better shot and vice versa. You know, it was just to watch those guys work. And then, man, of course, it was it was all in Chinese. So it was just <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, and I made this film I, that Bernd got me on. It was a German language film and I did it in Prague. And it was that was also one of the best experiences of my career was go making that film in Prague. Was there was there the communication wall there at all, or did they all speak English, or you speak a little German, or no, no, they didn't. The, the, the actors, um, were, were, their English was pretty damn good, but the crew was all Czech, and I had a translator who actually went to. She, she, her English was so good. I said, "Where are you from?" She goes, "I'm from here." I said, "No, you can't be." She said, "Yes, I am." I said, "Why, why is your English so damn good?" She went to the University of Texas. And I said, <laughs> so my translator, she was, she was absolutely spot on, but, and the cameraman, he spoke very little English, but his German was good. Um, but I had a script in English and you know, this is what I, I, I realized in watching film. I used to go to the theater here growing up in New Orleans called the Britannia theater. And it's still here. And this was like, this was our art house theater of the day. And the only opportunity to see foreign films, whether it was Italian, De Sica, or Fellini, or Truffaut, or, or, you know, or any of the great, you know, foreign filmmakers, that's the only place we could go see it. There was no VHS, there was no downloads, there was no nothing, you know. You go see it in a theater or you don't see it. And I just go there all the time and just, just love it, love it, love it. And it didn't bother me in the least to re- read a subtitle or whatever. And consciously or subconsciously, you all knew that there's, there's a story. And you got it. And you walked out, you know, you knew the story, you got it. It didn't matter if it was in French or Italian or whatever. and Or Polish or whatever. And so here I was in Prague, my first opportunity to direct a film in Europe. And I was in this incredible city making a, a foreign language film. And it, and it just struck me. I said, you know what? The, the language is, is universal because it's film. That's the language. We're, in, we're, we're, we're working with something that's universal. Film is the universal language here, not, not the German, not the English. And so I had a little speech, you know, that I said prior, the, the night before we started principal photography, I made a little speech to the crew. And the translator was there telling the crew and everybody, because we had a little dinner, you know, it's like one of these little things where you just get to know everybody. And, and that was what my speech was about. I said, you know, we're, we're, here's the language. We have guys, I know you don't understand what I'm saying. You have to have the translator here, but we're breaking all, all language barriers disappear when you start shooting film. And that's, and it's true. And then, 
and it didn't matter. You're telling a story visually, and I know it did. It it, it may sound a little airy fairy or whatever, but you know I think there's some truth in it. And and uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. So that was that. It was it was a great great experience to be able to do it. I have to say it was a, it was a wonderful experience. And the thing about it, the, the European actors. They're all about the, the craft. Nothing else, man. None of the bullshit and the trailers and the, my agent this and my agent that. They know, they're all about the craft. They show up, they, they, they go to work, and they just want to do it so badly and do it so well, you know? The, the play is the thing. I, I'm guessing that's the... <laughs> oh, you're right. That's exactly right. Yeah, it was the best, one of the best experiences, I think. I don't know if you ever had a chance to see the film, but it's out there somewhere but it was um it's a, you know you if you're making a film in a city like prague you know you automatically you've got a beautiful looking movie <laughs> yeah 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 that, like all that part's taken care of no, no cgi touch-ups needed for that place you know <laughs> i mean you know it was a low budget television movie but good lord the, the cameraman um jan his name is jan malia and he, he would say oli where do you want to put the camera and I said, dude, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> we drop that camera right here. You can just start on those beautiful spires, come down, she can get out of the car right here. Boom, we're done. I mean, anywhere you put the camera in that old town in the historic district of Prague, it was just just amazing. It was so much fun. It was great. Really great. Film looked like a you know, like a ten million dollar movie and I think we did it for two million bucks, you know. Yes. Oh, yeah. wonderful. Yeah, it was a great experience. One of my best, honestly. Thanks. So. Um, and I, just the last couple of years, like I, I noticed you were an associate producer for a show called Flip My Food with Chef Jeff. Yeah, that was an interesting project. I um, actually became a co-producer on it and a producer, but he was an interesting guy because he was a multimillionaire when he was 19 years old, and it was from selling dope. Oh, yeah. yeah, in L.A. That's one way to do it. Yeah, man. And he went to prison for about nine or ten years. He got out of prison, started out washing dishes at, at uh, the, some of the big hotel restaurants in Vegas. And he moved up the line, became a sous chef, and then became an executive chef. Ten, year, by the, ten years later, he was an executive chef at one of the high-end restaurants at the Bellagio. Oh, nice. then, he, then he wrote a book called Cooked, and or, or was that it? I think that was his book. Anyway, he wrote this book about his his experiences, and Will Smith called him up and gave him seven hundred fifty thousand for the book. And then, oh, nice. We met him, and then we said, "Dude, I think we ought to we ought to turn turn do something with you because you're he was so good on camera and his personality and." And he's he does inspirational talks now, you know. He's been doing those prior to doing the cooking show, so he was so damn good on camera with people. And I never saw anybody talk and chop food simultaneously the way he did. It was so damn good. <laughs> and we shot that all over the country, and uh, it, it was it was a good good show to be on. And um, kind of introduced me to doing some reality shows, and I, I, I just did a pilot for a new show we're trying to sell called Making the Cut, which is all about um, surgical residents. Sure, my God. That's another whole life of interesting people that 
you learn so much about these people that want to be, be, be surgeons. They're, they're out of school and they're $200,000 in debt and they, you know, they give up their a decade of their life and, you know, and, and it's just amazing stuff. And, and I'm shooting a show, we're finishing a pilot that I'm shooting right now um, called Dark Bayou, which is a crime show. It's kind of like um, this Netflix show that's made in London called Murder Maps. But it's a lot of lot of dialogue and reenactments and such, and um, it's all based on real stories out of out of Louisiana crime stories. Nice. And, and it's all shot down there in New Orleans, like in the Bayou, and yeah, oh yeah, yeah. In fact, we're going to go scout the location tomorrow, which is out in, exactly near near Hammond, Louisiana, which has all got bayous and alligators. Yeah. Where they dumped the body in a sofa. Some weird people. And, uh, <laughs> but it makes some great stories. Um, and but but my my pet project, which is I got my fingers crossed that we're finally going to get this thing done. It's a limited television series about Louis Armstrong. Oh, it is an amazing amazing story. People don't know anything about this guy and what he went through. I mean, just. Just the just the the obvious the, the stuff that do, people do know that his mother was a prostitute, his wife was a prostitute, his first wife. I mean, that he was he was so, he he was so damn good when he got to New York, via, through Chicago first, and then the gangsters were all running the brothels and the speakeasies, and they owned uh, uh, the Cotton Club, and all these places were run by Dutch Schultz and all the gangsters because of prohibition and. Prohibition was was the only time musicians could could work was the, the only jobs that they could get during Prohibition I should say were at these clubs because all the all the entertainment was black but all the clientele was white you know so so the only time Louis Armstrong in the height of his career for 13 years Prohibition went on in this country he worked f- for the gangsters. And played primarily for white audiences. And the thing that that tortured Lewis and his, is I, when I did, when I worked with an historian, I said, "What was his? What was his issue? I mean, he wasn't a drug addict. He wasn't strung out on dope. What was the problem? What 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 tortured this man?" And he said, "Well, the biggest thing is that he was called an Uncle Tom okay. went, from from his own race. And why? Because he they said everything he does and." Out there on the stage, they would call it plantation shenanigans, and and uh, the guy was completely tortured by it until 1957, the Little Rock Nine incident um, in Arkansas, where mm. Governor Fabus put a circle around Central High School down there with the National Guard to keep the kids from going to school, not to protect them. Lewis went off, man. He let it out in a newspaper article and some little newspaper, and it's a great story. But anyway, yeah, say so we don't want to give away the ending just yet. We got to wait till uh, <laughs> till the series comes <laughs> out. <laughs> but anyway, it's uh, it's it's pretty amazing stuff. And then there's all the music and everything else. And yeah, and yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. long. I mean, we've got pilot, we've got scripts written, and you know, we've got some interest from some pretty big producers right now. We have the juice and the wherewithal to get these things done. They, they're doing TV series right now. And I have a friend that's working with a big producer who's could get this done. And they'll, all, all they would have to do is 
snap their finger and it would happen, you know? So, yeah. And, and if we wanted to like, like help out or at least, you know, keep tabs on the, the stuff, uh, where, where can we find you? Like on social media websites? I don't know if there's Kickstarters. Well, I, I'm, I'm, pro- I'm thinking about doing, <clears throat> a, a not for, not for Lewis. Cause it's a, it's a big expensive show, but there's another yeah. show that I'm, I'm working on right now. Um, that I may get up, start running on Seed and Spark, and it's a TV uh, pilot that I wrote. It's, it's called Elysian Fields. No, excuse me, that was the old title. Now it's called Voodoo Child. So, and it's really cool, and it's a, you know, it's it's opposites. You know, this white bread Midwest guy who's, you know, politics are more, you know, to the right, and inherits inherits a house from a strange weird uncle who's practiced voodoo down here in new orleans and he comes down to get the house but there's a stipulation in the will that he has to live in the house for three years or he doesn't get it so here's like a fish out of water story and uh he ends up meeting a, a young black girl who's like you know got the dreads in the whole nine yards who is friends with the uncle who's uh who practices voodoo and they get nice. together they get together to 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 solve weird crimes in the in, in new orleans and this guy finally has to you know he's his arc is that he's got to realize that you know all of his prejudice and everything that he thought about was just wrong you know and he learns acceptance because he realizes that he's more like his uncle than he than he thought and his uncle was a a practitioner of voodoo you know so yeah it's, uh, yep i'm in i'm, I'm watching it that sounds amazing <laughs> well, Absolutely. and it's got all the other cool stuff that voodoo has and potions and demons and all kind of crazy stuff and it's called voodoo child and i'm hoping to, to that we get that up and running i can use the Jimi hendrix song voodoo child you know yeah the <laughs> very nice you guys think we follow you on like uh, social media and stuff, or is there like something we should follow to uh, keep tabs on this? Uh, you know. Well, I I haven't really, you know, I'm not a I'm not a, a a big believer of promoting stuff until it starts to really happen. Yeah, yeah, that makes you sense. You know, I don't like to say, you know, oh yeah, come check this thing out, and you can people go check out a website, and it's you know, and it gets cobwebs on it, you know, and I'm like, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna get it to a point where I'm I'm ready to launch and not just talk about it too much and and you know it has to, I, I'm trying to I want to get it set up where I have the momentum and really get it to a place where it's real and not just and that's that I got a really great pilot script written and a series bible written and and Lewis is really really well fleshed out that's a, you know I've got a, a a series bible on that it's about thirty pages and. Every every episode is mapped out. The first three episodes have already been written. It's really, you know, and I've got some really good people that want to do it. Went Marcellus wants to do all the music for Pops, and so it's really cool, man. That's uh, knock on wood, brother. Yeah, say we we got each other's email and stuff now. We'll just have to reach out when uh, when it when it's more solidified. We'll get you back on here and talk about it. <laughs> oh, definitely, and, uh, yeah, definitely. Now, Steve, now, what, well, listen, please let me know and. Uh, I'll send a, a Facebook blast out and get everybody to tune in and or however they can get to, to hear it, okay? Yeah, perfect. Thank you, Mr. Sesman. Or Oli. Thank you, Oli. Oh, Thank you so much. <laughs> say Mr. Sesson, I think of my dad. Like, <laughs> like, was he here too? No. <laughs> <laughs>
All right. Thank you, Oli. Have a wonderful time and enjoy. Uh, is it Jazz Fest this week or next week? Yeah, it is. It starts this weekend. Yeah. Oh, uh, enjoy. Man, I, I had a ticket to go see the freaking Rolling Stones. The Stones <gasps> were supposed to play here on May the 2nd, and Mick Jagger obviously had the heart surgery, but hey, oh. better better that the man's alive, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you'll get him next time. I'm sure he'll be back next year. Yeah, I've seen him a bunch of times, and I actually met, well, I, I shot a video with Mick Jagger years ago when he did She's the Boss, and I oh, met, I met uh, Keith Richards in New York at the green room at a one of the Saturday Night Live things and had a nice chat with him. He's a very cool guy. Awesome. Uh, excellent. Yeah. yeah. All right. Hey, you guys, thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, no, thank, thank you, sir. Thank you and so uh, definitely we'll keep in touch and uh, let us know when, when things come up. We'd be happy to help promote them. Oh, um, you got it, man. You got it. All right. Have a good evening, Ollie. Thank All right. you. Yeah. Bye now. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.